Thanks, Mark. Uh, do you have your Bibles open to Malachi chapter 2, so you can uh, keep looking at that passage. Um, let me say a big good afternoon and good to see you. Uh, if it's your first time with us, uh, really glad you can join us. My name's Adrian, I'm the full-time elder of the church, uh, and it's lovely to, to have you here today. I hope you are feeling at home, feeling welcome, uh, and it's good, isn't it, that we can gather together uh, to look at what God has to say to us. You've, if it's your first week here, it's certainly an, a strong, interesting passage that, uh, that we're, we're looking at. So we need to pray and ask for God's help. Let's do that. Loving Father, we do thank you for revealing the truth of your word to us. Please be at work by your spirit today as we look at this challenging passage. Uh, would you encourage us and challenge us where we need to uh, experience those things? And we just pray that you would be at work today, bringing us together around your word. Amen. Uh, the closest I think I've ever been to death or serious injury uh, was a time where I was in London and uh, I was crossing the road. And I kind of looked right, as you normally do, and there was nothing coming. And so I stepped out into the road and I just got to the other side and a taxi shot past me, missed me by, it felt like millimetres, you know, it was really close, going really, really quickly. And it turns out I've been rushing for an interview it was a one-way street, and I'd been looking the wrong way. So I should have been looking left. I was looking right. I'd missed a really big warning, the warning on the road, which said, look left. Instead, I, did, I wasn't looking. I was just in my own little world. And it was one of those heart-and-mouth moments uh, where you're like, wow, thank you, Lord, because it was just so close. Uh, but there are warnings like that are really important, aren't they? Uh, and in this passage, God sends a, a real strong warning to his people. Uh, and actually, we see for some it's already too late. So it's really serious, and it's, that's why also it's really important for us to have a look at and consider it for ourselves. Uh, we've been in Malachi for two weeks already, uh, and if you've been with us, you'll, you'll know that it's quite a serious book in tone, especially at the start. God, God is sending a, a strong message to his people who have become complacent, who are no longer worshipping him from their hearts. And last week, we saw a real big problem with their worship at the end of chapter 1. They were offering defiled sacrifices to God, which meant they weren't giving their best. They weren't giving the best of, of sacrifices, perfect sacrifices like they should. Uh, and we thought, didn't we, for ourselves, it's, it's challenging, it's hard. What does it mean for us to give our best to God in worship? It's often far more than we think, far more than we, we sacrifice. But now we get to chapter 2, and it kind of doubles down on the people that are right here in the centre of the problem the centre of the problem with worship, the priests. And God has this really severe warning for them. So we're going to look at the warning, and then we're going to think about what that means for us. So firstly, then, a warning to those who do not honour God. A warning to those who do not honour God. Look at verse 1 again. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, if you do not resolve to honour my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you. And I will curse your blessings. There's no doubt, is there, who needs to hear this message? You priests, this warning is for you. It's that emphasis, like, pay attention, priests. These were the, 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 the religious leaders of God's people at the time. They were there to, to, to lead with wisdom and, and to draw people into worship of God. And God says, listen up. I'm sending a curse on you. Really strong. These are the priests, remember, in chapter 1, who were basically accepting the sacrifices that were not, not okay. These weak, lame animals. 
uh, and basically saying it was fine, there was nothing, nothing to worry about. And God's saying, no, this is not okay. You're not honouring my name. You're not respecting me. That's what God deserves, isn't it? The God who created the universe deserves the best from his people. And instead they were giving him just the sort of dregs, the, the, n- nothing they really wanted to, well, the things they wanted to keep they kept and offered him the remains. So what's the result? We see God saying, I will send a curse. The word is unleash. I really unleash this curse on them. It's not good, is it, to read about curses from God? It's not often things become that serious. He says he will curse their blessings. Now that's bad because a priest's job was to bring blessing to God's people. Uh, I think we finished the service with these verses last week from Numbers. We, we've definitely done it in the past, haven't we? This is the called priestly blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That was their job. They, they were called to, to bless the people. And if that's cursed, it, it, this idea, their whole job as priests was twisted and ruined. Instead of helping, instead of encouraging God's people, they were doing nothing of the sort. And as well as that, they would have received blessing as priests. You know, people brought gifts to the temple so that they could live uh, off those gifts, the tithes and that sort of thing. If those were cursed, then the priests would struggle to survive, struggle to live, maybe impact on the next generation. As we see in verse 3, it talks about rebuking your descendants. In other words, their sin impacts far more than just themselves. This is really significant. Right at the heart of, of God's people worshipping, we've got this horrible picture of curse. And it's also a curse that's come, it's also a warning, sorry, that's come too late. Verse 2, God says, I have already cursed them because you have not resolved to honour me. For some at least, it is too late. They are so certain in their rejection of God and how they've dishonoured him. The curse is already at work and there's more to come. This is the really grisly bit, isn't it? Verse 3, I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices and you'll be carried off with it. This is the kind of ultimate end result of the curse. It's a horrible picture when you read it there and that's actually worse when I was studying it during the week. It's just, it's horrible the more you look at it. Basically, when it's talking about smearing dung on your face, the word for dung is actually offal. You know, the, 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 the entrails that would have come out of a sacrifice. Basically, when a sacrifice was offered, they would take out the offal, the intestines and all the guts and all that sort of thing because those were not clean. Those were not a good part of the sacrifice. So they'd sort of rip them out and leave them in a pile on the floor and then eventually they'd be taken outside of the camp and burnt. And that's what God is saying. He's saying, look, you have def- you've shown me no respect. You've shown me no honour. You have defiled, you've offered defiled sacrifices to me. And it's like, so you're going to be defiled in the worst way possible. You're going to be smeared with this sort of poo-filled intestines, covered in that. And then you're going to be carried off and destroyed in the same way. It's horrible. And notice it's festival time. That's the time where the most sacrifices happen. So there would have been a big steaming pile of offal. And that's, it's a horrible picture, isn't it? I, I thought, you know, now I've got PowerPoint, I thought, I'll oh, be brilliant. I'll show you a picture of these intestines in this offal. It'll be, it'll be great. I Googled it and I felt so sick. I thought, I'm not going to put that on the screen. It was, it was really, it was horrible. 
And the thing is, the Israelites would know. They would, they, you know, they would have seen sacrifices happening. They would know much more viscerally than maybe we do what that was like. It's a shocking picture, isn't it? And you think, how is this picture in the Bible? How is this God saying this to his people? Maybe it's just shocking, isn't it, the fact that God is sending a curse like this. There's a, maybe, maybe that gives you, a, 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 maybe that raises a question in you. After all, chapter 1, verse 2 says, I have loved you, says the Lord. I've loved you. And now chapter 2, it's like, I'm sending a curse. How does that work? How, how do we get this balance between God's love and this curse? Well, it's true, isn't it, that if you love something greatly, you're more angry when it's threatened. You're more angry when it's damaged. Uh, we feel angry, don't we, if someone were to uh, abuse a child. We would feel rightly angry at that. But far more horrifying, far more angry, far more troubling would be the case if it was our child that had been abused. That would be tr- You'd be so much more angry about that. And so there's this sense of that with God. It's, he's not just sort of coldly dealing with his people. He is angry. He's offended at what's going on. You've got to be angry, haven't you, to rub dung in someone's face. You've got the holy, awesome perfection of God having been shown no respect, no honour. There's been no proper worship. And so God has every right to be angry, for there to be consequences of that. Because what we, if, you, if you look at what the Bible says, you see that actually God's love and God's anger hold together. You need both. He loves his people so deeply that he is angry when they are led astray, when they are led into sin themselves. Because he deserves their worship. The priests deserve what they got. God's anger is perfect. It's not like our own, which is often sinful and, uh, and affected by sin. God's anger is perfect. I guess the trouble is, is you know, I read passages like this and then I look at my own heart and I see that God knows my heart and I think, well, I'm no different to these priests. I deserve the same fate. I am sinful. I, I, I've chosen over and over again to put myself before God, to live in a way that is against God. That's true for me. I'm sure that's true for you. And we read of this curse on the priest and we think, that affects me too. My sin means I should face that same judgment, that same anger from God. I've not shown him the honour and worship he deserves. That's kind of why I titled this sermon slightly provocatively, Are You Headed for the Dung Heap? Because we can't avoid the reality of sin in our lives. And we might sort of compare ourselves to other people and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as that person over there, or I'm better than that person. And then you realise, I'm supposed to be comparing myself to the holy standard of God. That's where I fall short. And it's the real challenge, isn't it? If, if you're not a follower of Jesus, in fact, have you considered how serious it is to reject him like this? It's so serious. So there's a big problem, this curse, this not honouring God. It's really serious. But maybe it leads us to a question. Secondly, what does honouring God look like? What does honouring God actually look like? We see that in the next few verses. And actually, verse 4, we see why God has been so strong in this warning. Look at verse 4. You will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, if you remember, I was leading the service and we thought about the fact that God never breaks his promises. 
It's wonderful to remember that, isn't it? That he is wholly reliable and trustworthy. And when he makes a covenant promise, that is never going to be broken. It's a special agreement between God and his people. And so God's saying, I'm sending this warning because my covenant must continue. And it's a strange phrase, this covenant with Levi. Maybe you've never come across that phrase before. It's not used a lot. It's basically just a shortcut for saying the, uh, the, the sort of responsibilities that he gives the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, particularly the, the sort of priestly line from uh, Aaron. So they were there to lead worship. They were there to do the sacrifices like we heard about. The tribe as a whole were, were to be the assistants in the temple, to guard the temple, to make sure it would, would be protected. It wouldn't be defiled. And God says, I've made this agreement with them that should they do that, if they do these things well, there's this covenant of life and peace. If they do these things rightly, if they do these things well, they should expect blessing. So what does it look like? What does it look like to do these things well? There's three things I just want to show you very quickly from the passage about what it is to honour God. And firstly, it's awe. See that in verse 5. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. You see, God blesses his people through this covenant. And what's the response? Reverence. Reverence. That's slightly weird word isn't it i looked it up in the dictionary and this is what it says profound adoring awed respect i love that phrase isn't it profound adoring awed respect that's what it means to revere god it's it's he is so wonderful that it's a profound thing we adore him in awe and we respect him the word is often translated fear in in the hebrew and that's not a kind of terrified sense like some evil tyrant this is this profound awe of the creator god who is just so much greater and more good and more wise and more powerful than we can imagine so worthy of all of our praise and worship that you've got to say wow you've got to be in awe of him my my boys often go wow and it's the most you know boring obvious ordinary thing that they're saying that they're amazed at you think why are you amazed at that you think, actually, we need to be amazed, don't we, at the holy creator God and all he's done for us, who he is, what he has done. That's what should make us go, wow, awe. That's what the priests were supposed to have, this sense of awe. They were also to teach the truth. You see that there, verse 6? True instruction within his mouth. Nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. Because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. People seek instruction from his mouth. Truth, instruction, that's the focus of these verses. The priests were, that was a key job to teach the truth. How people should live in response to who God is. They were to lead the people wisely. To lead them in worship. So a real responsibility there for the priests. To preserve knowledge, to, to, to hold on to that truth, to be a messenger of God's. Serious responsibility, a high calling. But not just teaching it, they were also to live out the truth. We see that in the same verses. Integrity was so important to the priest. that His words and his actions were to line up. There should be nothing false on his lips, it says. He should walk in peace and uprightness. In other words, they should not be hypocrites who say one thing and do another. 
It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, it's impossible to respect and follow someone otherwise. Imagine going to the doctor and, and then saying to you, right, don't smoke, smoking kills. And as they're saying that to you, they've got a cigarette and they're lighting it up and having a smoke. You wouldn't take them seriously, would you? Because they're not, they're not saying, they're not following their own advice. Priests were to do, to live out what they were teaching. And they make a big impact. Verse 6, they would turn many from sin. Showing people where they were living in the wrong way. Turning towards God. Turning in the right way. Living rather than in a way that leads to death. Leading in a way that leads to life. To peace. To blessing. It's great, isn't it? That's how to honour God. It's a great theory. But let's see what the reality was in Malachi's day. We've already heard a bit of it, but look at verse 8. But... But you have turned away from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people, because you have not followed my ways. You have shown partiality in matters of the law. They've done the opposite, all of all of those things. They have turned away from the truth. They have taught people error so that they are led astray. They have shown partiality. In other words, they, they were most likely exploiting the poor. They were maybe showing favour to the wealthy. Maybe letting them get away with more with these sacrifices and things like that. They were people pleasers. They violated the covenant. They ruined that relationship. They ruined that promise. That's why it's so serious. That's why God sends this curse. Because they had caused people to stumble. It's not good. And so God will remove them. His promise will never fail, we know that. So they've got to be removed, they've got to be, uh, they've got to be changed. It says they're despised, they're humiliated. It's like God sends the message through Malachi so that the people understand and, and, and realise that actually they realise the truth that people can get rid of the priests. It's not a super cheerful passage, is it, this week? But there are things for us to, to learn from this passage and from this book. Let's consider perhaps some of the challenges that I think we need to pay attention to as well. Firstly, those who lead need to pay attention. Now, we don't have a priesthood in the same way uh, today because Jesus is our high priest and he's the one we look to. But there are parallels here, aren't there, in terms of teaching the truth and living it out and awe and thinking, well, in particular, teaching the truth. Who kind of has that responsibility here? Uh, oh, it's, it's me, isn't it? And the other elders and the other teachers and leaders in the church. It's a real warning and reminder for us to examine our lives, to examine our hearts, to be asking ourselves, are we in awe of God? Are we fearing him? Do we love him for who he is? Are we firmly committed to teaching the truth? Even the hard bits? That's tricky, isn't it? You know, sometimes you come to a really tricky passage and you think, maybe I can just... Just smooth it off a bit or make it a bit easier. Because after all, essentially you guys pay my wages, right? So I need to keep you happy, don't I? It's hard not to be a people pleaser. We've got to teach the truth. And what's even more challenging is our life. Do our lives back up what we teach? Are we living out the truth of the gospel? It's a question for all of us as leaders to, to be thinking about. We want to be able to be trusted by you. Uh, and that takes time, doesn't it, as we grow to, get to know each other better. But hopefully you should be able to see the difference the gospel makes in our lives. 
And that's why we're accountable to each other. That's why we're accountable to the church. It's right for you to challenge us if you think we're living in ways that dishonour Jesus. We want to encourage people to to grow and change and, and turn away from sin rather than to stumble and be led astray. So please pray for us. And yeah, those who lead, we need to pay attention to reflect on these things. It's not just leaders though. Look at this verse from 1 Peter 2. You're a chosen people. Let's talk about the church. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter says the whole church, everyone, every believer is a royal priesthood. All of us, we are saved by Jesus. We become his ambassadors. We, we bring God's message to, to the world around us. We bring God's truth like the priests. So actually, it's not just leaders. This uneasy warning is for all of us. We all need to pay attention to this. If we're believing in Jesus, we're called to know God's word really well. We're to let it kind of sink in and, and permeate and, uh, and it affects how we interact with other people. We, we're called to live it out in daily life. We need to think of those same questions, don't we? Are we in awe of God? Are we responding to his love by respecting him, obeying him? Do we read his word? Do we hear it preached and think, wow, are we in awe of what a saviour we have? Do we know the truth? Do we carefully read and study and meditate on his word so that we know it deeply? Maybe on our own, but also with others. And does that then work its way out? Do we, what's the temptation? If someone asks you for advice, are you tempted just to kind of just lead with your own opinions, with your own feelings? Or do you say, well, well, let's see what the Bible says. Let's look at the truth of what God says. And do you live for God? Do we live for God? Does, that, does it make a difference in our lives every day? Do we end up fighting those temptations towards half-hearted worship like we talked about last week? Or is it a case of, kind of, you know the right answers, you know the truth, but your life doesn't really back that up day by day. If someone were to look at you, they wouldn't think, there's something different there. The gospel makes a difference to them. These are hard questions, aren't they? Just, just turn to the person next to you just for, for a couple of minutes and answer this question. Which one of those three things do you think is the hardest? The awe of God, knowing the truth, or living it out? Just very quickly to the person next to you, if, you, if you're able, have a quick chat about that, what you think.
Okay, okay, let's come back together. These, these are hard questions, aren't they? These are big questions. And I'm guessing, you know, we, we probably spoke about all three of those things as being tricky. And that's probably the answer, isn't it? If we're really honest, we think, well, sometimes I'm probably doing okay in those things, but I often get it wrong. I don't always follow God's ways. I don't always live like I should. And like I said earlier, ultimately, we're no better than the priests of Malachi's day. We deserve to be thrown out onto the dung heap. So where's the hope? What hope have we got? I'm not finishing the sermon without giving you something here. And there is good news because there is great hope because we have a perfect high priest. We have a perfect high priest. The, the book of Malachi is almost crying out for someone to come and do something different and live in a different way. To succeed where God's people and the priests failed in the past. And we know that person is the Lord Jesus. We live after he has come and died and rose again. But there are two things in particular that Jesus does for us that I think this passage sort of maybe just unlocks and helps us understand. Firstly, that Jesus took the curse for us. You know, our sin, it deserves that judgment. It deserves that curse like the priest's. But thanks to Jesus, that curse of judgment is taken away. Galatians 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us, that's brought us back, that saved us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a pole. It's talking about the cross. You see, we are rescued from this curse because Jesus was cursed instead. And that is incredible to consider, isn't it? Think about who Jesus is. You read about him in the Gospels. He always walked in fear and awe of his father. He always spoke the truth, true words of instruction. He brought life and peace. His words and his life backed each other up perfectly. He led many away from sin. Many came and found his love. He is that perfect priest that's described in verses 5 and 6. And yet he suffered the curse in our place. He was sort of taken outside the city, taken, removed like the, the offal, like the, uh, the intestines from the sacrifices. That's how he was treated. Taken outside of the city to a place of shame and executed on a cross. Jesus died in humiliation so that we don't have to experience that. That is amazing love isn't it that's what he did for, for us and that means instead we are made clean we are declared pure and righteous there's no smearing of dung on our faces we've instead we're brought into god's presence we are brought before the father we live with him forever that is such good news however aware of your sin you may be this afternoon he has taken that curse away if you trust him but actually there's more good news than just that and it's this, that, that Jesus is interceding for us right now. Remember, he died on the cross, but he did not stay dead. He is risen, he is exalted. He ha- has conquered death and he lives forever. So what's he doing right now? That's the question, isn't it? I'd love to take you to Hebrews 7 and basically preach you the whole chapter. I can't, obviously can't do that. But go to Hebrews 7 and have a look at it because there's lots there. I'm just going to read a couple of verses that kind of just help us see this. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, 
set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. I wonder if you've ever interceded for someone before. It's just a big word that means you go between people to sort out a situation. You know, an argument on a football pitch, uh, tantruming toddlers. Let's be honest, I was interceding even during the service with my boys today. Maybe difficult work relationships, those sort of things. You come between, you try and reconcile and restore those relationships. This, this passage says Jesus is doing that. He lives today to do that for us, right now. And that's such good news. You know, sometimes we can be fearful, can't we? Because you think, well, I've maybe missed repenting for that particular sin. Or what if I sin and then what if I die before I can repent? And what if I miss something and, uh, and I don't think about it? And... You can kind of be anxious about those things. And actually, do you know what? We can never perfectly repent of our sin. There always be, we'll always be blind to our sin in certain ways. And we might think, well, what do I do then? And, or, you know, how can I possibly be forgiven if I keep losing the battle like over and over again with this sin, with that sin? You see, this just squashes those fears and those anxieties completely. Because Jesus is alive and he is interceding for us. That means the Father never sees our sin. Jesus is always there. He's always saying, no, don't worry. They've trusted me. I've taken their sin away. Even the sin they haven't done yet, I've taken it away and I've paid the price for them completely. I have taken their curse. They are clean and forgiven and holy. They are welcome. You see, we don't need to fear God's holy judgments. We are secure thanks to Jesus. And he intercedes for us. He's alive today, interceding for us right this very second. That means we will never be thrown onto the dung heap. That means we will live with God forever. And that news transforms us. You know, it can be easy to hear that and think, well, that means I don't need to worry about my sin. I can just carry on sinning. That, that's not the point. The point is he saved us from so much. He gives us the power by his spirit to change. And as we get that truth, that transforms us to respond, not, not just by treating it cheaply, but by loving him, obeying him more closely. If you're not trusting him today, do you see that following Jesus is so different to other religions? It's not kind of, oh, if I do enough, I might be accepted. It's not what it's about. He is our personal high priest who has taken us in a way and lives even today to make sure of that fact. And you can find that forgiveness. You can find that certain hope if you put your trust in him today. Come and pray with someone afterwards. But I was thinking, you know, what's the best way to respond to this? It's a challenging passage, but there's good news thanks to Jesus. And I thought we need to sing this truth. We're going to sing a song together now, the song Before the Throne of God Above. It's, a, it's just a perfect song for this, this passage, because it's like we have a great high priest, a perfect high priest who, who lives for us. And that's what makes all the difference. So if the musicians could come up, uh, we're going to stand together and rejoice.